Hello, you're listening to Ignite, brought to you by Glasgow Science Centre. My name is Patrick, your host for this series. In this podcast, we speak to scientists from various backgrounds, learn about their work and discover what it takes to become a scientist. Today's guest is Professor Jamie Tony, who is Professor of Environmental and Climate Science at the University of Glasgow, and she directs the Centre for Sustainable Solutions. She also runs the Gallant Project, which we'll explore later in this episode. If you enjoy Ignite, please share us far and wide, and don't forget to ask us any questions on Twitter at GSC1. Thank you so much for joining us today, Jamie. How are you? I'm doing fine. A bit chilly here in Glasgow. It has suddenly got freezing all of a sudden. I've got my slippers on and my thickest possible socks. But uh, what we're going to do to start this chat off is I'm just going to throw some very random, sometimes non-scientific questions to you, if that's okay. Okay. There's 10 of them. There's nothing too controversial here. Question number one is lochs or seas? Lochs or seas? Hmm. Uh, lochs, although I would call them lakes. <laughs> Morning or evening? Morning. Tea or coffee? Coffee. Would you rather lose your keys or your phone? Ooh, that's a tough one. Um, my phone. Wizards or superheroes? Another tough one. Harry Potter or Marvel? (laughs) I'll go with superheroes. Headphones or speakers? Speakers. (laughs) Books or films? Books. Do you prefer to work in a team or individually? In a team. Would you rather have unlimited travel tickets paid for or never have to pay for food at restaurants? Never have to pay for food at restaurants. And would you rather be able to speak every language on the planet or speak to animals? These aren't easy questions. (laughs) They're really not. I think I'd rather be able to speak to animals. I think I agree. In fact, I think I agree with just about every one of your answers there, to be honest with you. It doesn't get any easier because I know how varied and incredible your career and your work has been so far. But what I need you to do now is to sum up your work in three words. Sustainable... environmental solutions brilliant i'm sure we'll explore that in greater detail uh, later on Uh, what i'd like to ask you now is about your early life jamie and particularly when you first became aware of of science as a thing or as as a concept i guess my entry into science was that i've spent all of my life outdoors. I think the biggest thing that you need to have in order to go into science is a curiosity about how things around you work. And I think because I spent my time in my parents' back garden where we had a pond and we were catching turtles and frogs with my brothers and my grandfather was an oysterman, so we spent a lot of time outdoors catching crabs and eels and various things that my grandmother would then cook for dinner. I I just spent a huge amount of time outdoors understanding or trying to understand how things worked in in the environment. So I think in in the first instance, my my interest and my curiosity really was just looking at the world around me and trying to understand the connections and how things work. And and where was home for you? I grew up in Connecticut in the the US, so the Northeast Coast. And did you find that you were, so you're saying you you loved the outdoors, were you were you always outside? Were you? Did you have to be found when you were young? You'd be outside in a forest or a, 
a lake somewhere. Yeah, so my parents had a pond in the backyard and we had forests around us. My dad actually had a giant bell that was on um, a stone uh, platform. And I have two brothers, and if there, if he rang the bell once, which you could hear all the way throughout the neighborhood, it was for my older brother. If he rang the bell twice, it was time for me to go home. So, yeah, I had to be called in in, in that unique sort of way. <laughs> I love that. So, when did you start piecing that together? Was it was it an interest in in school about learning about the, the outdoors, or when did it start to become more than just a something you loved? And something you actually thought you could pursue? I think there are a number of different things that came together. When I was around 10 years old in my neighborhood, a number of people were coming down with various illnesses and they ended up tracking it down to the fact that our well water, so we had wells at the time, was contaminated with a chemical called tetrachloroethylene. And this is something that's used in the dry cleaning industry. So we ended up having to drink bottled water for a year until they were able to bring city lines in, in terms of water. And so my interest, as, as I moved into kind of secondary school or high school, my interest was really in history and law. I was kind of curious about maths and biology and chemistry, but I never really intended to pursue sciences as as a degree i just hadn't ever thought about it i think until i i got to university did you always think that you were going to be a scientist or is this something that you sort of fell into i, I think i fell into it i did maybe what the opposite of what most people do when they go to university if they switch degree tracks because i started out with a track going into environmental law but I was mostly taking history and political science courses, and I wasn't really getting the environment side of things. So I actually lost interest in the degree that I was doing. And it wasn't until the end of my first year at university that I actually switched over and started taking courses in biology and geology and, and some of the natural sciences. And then I, I realized that I absolutely loved everything I was learning. Was there a, a light bulb moment where you suddenly realized, yes, I, I do love this? Or was it a sort of gradual, the more you learned, the more you discovered how much it meant to you? I, I think I think it was when I took, took my first geology course. I was actually in third year and I took environmental geology. And that's the thing that I, I had never taken before. It was never offered in any of my secondary school courses or any other university courses. And it was taking that course where we were learning how sand dunes form and we were learning how, you know, lakes uh, turn over every year. Because I was also doing a biology degree at the same time, we were learning about how landscapes moved. And I started to realize that the interface between geology and biology is you couldn't understand the landscape unless you knew about the plants and you couldn't really understand the plants unless you knew about the soil and the landscape and so it was really that interface between geology and biology that really drew me in and I think I had a, a light bulb moment like this is really fascinating this is this is what I want to do. Taking it back ever so slightly did did school work for you was it and and university and academic learning did you find you had to work harder than other people or did it sort of come naturally to you? I enjoyed school and I delved into it, but it didn't necessarily come easy to me. So my, my older brother um, is a mechanical engineer and I think he knew from 
early, early on that he was that introverted engineering type and he didn't have to study for any of his exams. He aced all of his classes, whereas I did well in school, but I probably spent about, you know, 10 times more actually studying for my exams, actually learning the material and reading, reading the textbooks and all of, all of those things that you do. So I enjoyed it, but I also had to work really hard at it as well. You're speaking to us now from Glasgow. When did the, when did the move to the UK? come about? I finished my PhD in 2011 and I had a number of opportunities for postdoctoral positions both in the States and then across here in Glasgow. So in 2011 I moved for a postdoc that was only supposed to be for three years and then my boss, my supervisor, ended up leaving for a job down in Birmingham and I applied for his job. And since then, um, yeah, I've stayed. I've, I've been in Glasgow for, for 12 years now. Fantastic. And that leads us very nicely to the work you're doing just now. So I wondered if you could summarize you know, that work for, for someone listening who's, who's never heard of it before and why it's so crucial and so important. So if I describe the research that I was doing up until about five or six years ago, I was basically researching and learning all about the causes and consequences of climate change. And I found that as I was lecturing to students about that, you'd end up in a space where you're kind of almost in a doom and gloom scenario with the climate emergency looming. And it was such such a big problem. And I didn't really have an idea of how we move forward in terms of solutions. And so I ended up setting up a center here in 2020 which looks at sustainable solutions. And what I came to learn is because the climate emergency is such a a big and complex thing to tackle, it actually relates to so many other things. It relates to inequalities within society. It relates to public health and planetary health. And so we brought together lots of people across different disciplines. And the work that I'm, I'm doing now is actually a result of all of those different conversations that we've had. So one of the very first partnerships that we formed is a really strong partnership with Glasgow City Council, because I think cities are a really nice size to be able to drive change forward. And we've been able to work with them. We worked with them for a couple of years, running dialogues ahead of COP26 being hosted here in Glasgow. And through all of the connections that we've made through that work, we've been successful in applying for research funding. If, if you're going to do research and apply for funding, you need to have a really catchy acronym. <laughs> so we have an acronym called GALANT, and it stands for Glasgow as a Living Lab Accelerating Novel Transformation. And what we're trying to do in that is actually tackle the climate emergency make the city climate resilient and achieve its net zero targets. But we're doing that while we consider any sort of interventions that move forward, how we actually, how those actually might affect the environment, how those might affect people's social outcomes within the city, but also also globally as well, because we know that climate change is, is a global issue. And how confident are you about the 2030 targets. Do you have cause for hope that you know cities like Glasgow will be able to do this in seven years' time? So uh, I'm optimistic that we can make 
change. If you look at a city like Glasgow, they've done all the research now to understand how much it will cost or how much investment is needed in the city in order to achieve, well, net zero by 2030. And they've come up with a figure of 30 billion pounds. That's billion with a B. Um, so that's huge. And and what it kind of states is um, the, the research fund that we have is, is 10 million pounds over the next five years, which is only a drop in the bucket when you look at the whole picture. But it's brought us into conversations where there are businesses and industries that are starting to invest in the city. Um, and so I think that we all have a common vision for moving forward. The city's really progressive. They're looking at things like circular economy, which might be a new word for some folks, but it's essentially, if you're thinking about that, how do you create a circular food system, for example? So how do you actually grow all of the food that the city consumes, either locally or in concert with the, the natural rural landscape? So there's there's lots of really innovative things that are happening and it seems like the private investment is there as well because it's obvious that the city isn't going to be able to pay for everything that needs to happen to achieve net zero. There was a young person listening to this just now who, you know, was also passionate about climate change and, and the changes that, that they can make, but they didn't necessarily, or they don't necessarily find that school works for them or, or they don't or they have no idea how they can become a scientist or, or work in science what would your advice be to them um i guess i would say if, if you know that you are very passionate about climate science and climate change is to to have a look and think about which parts of you know climate science are most interesting to you and, and climate change because you can do anything from you know, looking at atmospheric gases, you know, if the carbon dioxide levels in the atmosphere are interesting to you, that would be a different area of science that you would go into than if you were interested in how climate change is impacting on the natural environment or animals or plants and, and things like that. So I guess the, the first thing would be is to try and think about what it is you're, you're really, really interested, what, you know, either concerns you the most about climate change and then start to think about well which which field of of science is that and yeah get get a sense of, of what it is that will keep you interested as you continue your your studies yeah and do you do you find that within the gallant project that you're working with lots of people who don't necessarily have scientific backgrounds as well. Yeah, it's been it's been in some ways an interesting learning curve because scientists tend to speak in jargon and potentially different language. And so um, we work very differently than we have colleagues who are in the arts and humanities. We have colleagues who I said are in public health, for example, and we all have different ways of doing things. And what we're finding is it's really nice to embrace those differences. We're finding new ways to, to work together and, and do things differently. And I think in order to address some of these really big challenges, we need to do things differently. We can't do things the, the same way we've always done them. What is one thing? It could be an object or, or something else. It could be absolutely anything. It's totally at your discretion. What's one thing? that you could not do your job without? I used to core lakes, so collect mud from the bottom of lakes, and I've chosen my, my Leatherman. So 
It's a multifunctional tool that has everything from a screwdriver and a wrench and a knife. Um, and I, I take that with me whenever I do field work and it's come in very handy. You never know when you need some sort of tool either to put something together or take something apart or even scrape mud so you can see some fossils a little bit better. Do you find fossils in your work as well? We do. So I tend to work in lake mud, so they tend to be very small fossils, um, fossil plants and things like that. During my master's degree, which I did out in Arizona on spring break, we used to join the expeditions. Um, Some of the researchers at Northern Arizona University used to drive south into Mexico, where they had a site where they were actually excavating mammoths and the kinds of um, animals that you see in like the Ice Age movies, no like the giant sloths and things like that. So, yeah, when I was a master's student, I used to spend my spring breaks excavating mammoths and <laughs> doing all sorts of neat stuff. Yeah. What's the what's the coolest fossil you found? There's a really strange Ice Age animal called a gompothere. I th- it actually looks kind of in its structure like a turtle, but I think they were actually mammals. And so they have these hard kind of shells and the shells are made up these like little tiny tiles. And so when you ex- when we were excavating the site, we found these little tiles that if you piece them all together would end up forming like a, almost like the size of like a giant tortoise shell. So you, you've touched on already the, the sort of the three keywords that you, you gave us, the just sustainable environment solutions. And you've spoken about, you know, your love for the outdoors and the, the fight against climate change. Is that solely what motivates you with the work that you do just now, or is there there other motivating factors for you? I, I think that the so the work that I used to do was more around understanding how things work, and the work that I'm doing now by bringing these different disciplines together, I think we are actually coming up with solutions that can help people and help communities in terms of the impacts of climate change. And so when I say sustainable, within the Center for Sustainable Solutions, we spent a lot of time actually thinking about what sustainable actually means. And so we came up with a definition, which I can tell you the definition and then I can break it apart if yeah, <laughs> please needed. Do. Go for it. But it's, um, or maybe I'll break it apart as we go, mm-hmm. but it's meeting the social foundations. So the social foundations are that everybody should have access to certain things like food and energy and good health and all of those. So, so meeting the social foundations of the current and future generations while living responsibly within a healthy, natural environment. I think having that definition and having a vision that we recognize we want to be helping people and their health and we want to be helping the planet. It's quite a big vision to have, but uh, I think that really is where we need to be moving and making sure that our policies and our laws and all of the decisions that we're making are moving in that direction. It's a big vision, but it's an important one. And I'm really glad that there are people like you out there, you know, working, working towards it. You mentioned, I think you mentioned, you know, as a lecturer, that you felt a lot of doom and gloom regarding the, the climate crisis. Do you feel more positive now, given that you're working towards these solutions? And how do you feel generally about a sustainable future and our, our goals by 2030? I, I would say that I am more optimistic now that I'm working in the solution space. And I'm happy to be able to convey that in in lectures. Some of what we're doing within the Center for Sustainable Solutions too, that's been 
very rewarding and I think helps me be optimistic is we've been running upskilling courses, which are courses that anybody, whether, you know, we, we see people who are stay-at-home moms, we see people who are working in the NHS, we see people, especially during COVID, who had lost their jobs and are looking to retrain in subjects around sustainability. Within those courses, we see so many people who want to know, well, how do I calculate my carbon footprint? How do I decide what's the best way for me to help? And you just see people from all walks of life and all different places coming together to try and and make change. And so I think the fact that so many people want to help contribute to solutions is is just really fantastic and really keeps me optimistic about our chances of achieving net zero. That's really, really refreshing to hear. Thank you. I'd like to finish up by just asking you what your favorite scientific fact is. Now, this doesn't necessarily have to be about your field, but maybe more science in general, it's entirely up to you. When, when, when I talk to people about climate change and we show, I'm sure everybody's seen the various curves of carbon dioxide rising over the past 100, 150 years, if you zoom in on that curve, it actually looks like it has like a saw blade, like an up and down tooth sort of pattern. And that happens year on year. One of the things that I find the most fascinating about that is that most of the Earth's vegetation is located in the northern hemisphere. So year on year, when you see carbon dioxide going up and carbon dioxide coming down around that overall trend, what's actually happening is when the trees are beginning to get their leaves in the spring and the vegetation starting to grow, it's almost like they're collectively taking in a big deep breath. So they're taking in carbon dioxide and you can actually see the carbon dioxide in the global atmosphere go down. And then when they lose their leaves and go dormant over the winter, you then see the carbon dioxide go back up because they're not photosynthesizing and, and taking that carbon dioxide in. So that's one thing that's always really fascinated me in terms of, of science and scientific facts. Thank you so, so much for joining us today, Jamie. It's been absolutely brilliant having you on. It's been great to learn more about the Gallant Project as well. It's been fantastic to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you so much for listening to Ignite and thank you so much to our guest, Professor Jamie Tony. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with anyone else who you think might enjoy it and subscribe, save and leave a review. Bye for now. <laughs>